The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information on Shiloh Presbyterian Church, please visit our website at shilohopc.org. Um, do you have a, a timeline? Since I know people have been asking about timelines. Calvin, if you, would you mind handing these out? And then you can just put the stack back by the door. Um, the TV is fighting with me today, so I'm going to think I'm going to give up on that. <clears throat> you slighted your own grandfather. Um, all right, let's open in prayer. We thank you, O Lord, for your goodness, your kindness to us. We thank you for your word, the promises therein. We thank you for the saints that have gone before us and their testimony of the faith in Christ. We pray, O Lord, that we would uh, stand fast to this uh, same faith that is yes and amen in Christ Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. All right, this um, lesson, all right, I'm just going to, I'm going to abandon my slides. There aren't that many anyway. I don't know why the TV's flashing off and on. The lesson is going to overlap a little bit with Matthew's, or quite a bit with Matthew's, and some of what Matthew hadn't finished last week, he's going to uh, continue next time, uh, which is talking about Presbyterianism and colonial America. This week, specifically, we're going to talk about colonial North Carolina. Um, so Matthew's was more general uh, across the colonies, uh, but this is more focused on North Carolina. Um, the, uh, some of what I'm going to talk about, you're going to, I'm going to assume that you've heard Matthew's lessons from last week that he didn't finish, so you won't hear till next week, but I think it'll all come together okay. Um, so just as a, as a brief reminder from last week, in 1706, um, the Presbytery of Philadelphia is established. That's kind of the first Presbyterian body in North Carolina. Um, that is going to ultimately become what we now know as the, the PCUSA. I'm going to turn this off so you're not distracted by gorillas. Um, when that happens, 1706, um, there are no Presbyterian congregations in North Carolina uh, at all. And the, the population of North Carolina in 1706 is actually only about 10,000 people. It's, North Carolina is, is very, very small and, and largely uninhabited at that, that time. Um, by the time that First Presbyterian Church of Raleigh is established, which is in 1816, um, there are a half million people in North Carolina. So still not a lot of people, and that's, that's half the population of Wake County, I think. Um, still not a lot of people, but there are 100 Presbyterian churches in, in North Carolina. So we're going to try to talk about how we go from no churches in the early 1700s to 100 churches in the, the 19th century, early 19th century. You might recall, and, and those of you who teach uh, homeschool North Carolina history probably know all this better than me, but that uh, the first attempt for an English settlement in, in North Carolina was um, Sir, Walter, Sir Walter Raleigh's settlement on Roanoke Island um, that eventually leads to what we call the Lost Colony, or where the colonists uh, seemingly disappeared. Um, so that's in the late uh, or 1500s. Through the 1600s, not really a whole lot happens in North Carolina for a variety of reasons. Uh, a big one is the coast of North Carolina is not particularly conducive to ships um, arriving. We were just at the beach this week, and you can see in all the gift, gift stores at the, the beach the, the uh, map of shipwrecks along the North Carolina coast, particularly, I think, up towards the Outer Banks. But if you've seen that, you see that the North Carolina coast really likes to, to eat ships. Um, and so settlers... The Spanish, in particular, avoided coming to North Carolina, um, and others just largely ignored it, uh, and ships went to places that were more, more welcoming. 
Um, by the mid-1600s, though, some settlers start coming down from Virginia into uh, northeastern North Carolina. So you can think up towards like Edenton and that, that area, North Carolina, south of Virginia Beach. Um, there is a record that Francis McAmey, who we learned last week, is the father of American Presbyterianism, he's often called. He did visit uh, North Carolina in 1683 and 1684, so very early uh, North Carolina. We don't know where he went, but it, the, the, the record just says he came to North Carolina and he preached. It was probably up in northeastern um, North Carolina, again, south of Virginia Beach. Um, the only organized church in the 1600s in North Carolina, does anybody want to guess what, what denomination it was? Anglican is a good guess, but it's actually not Anglicans. Baptist. Not Baptists. Baptists were still really developing at that age. It was Quakers. Uh, Quakers were, were early in, in North Carolina. If we had more time, you know, I was going to talk, you know, we could think about what are, what are churches that you expect to see if you drive into a town in North Carolina today. You might think, um, you know, there's an Elevation Church branch, probably a Summit Church branch. Um, probably a charismatic church. You might have United Methodist Church and a, and a Baptist church. In North Carolina in the you know, 1700s, you'd go around, you'd see Anglicans, Presbyterians, Quakers, Moravians, Lutherans probably, uh, which are not really what we think about as the, the major churches in North Carolina today. Um, in 1711, a man, uh, an Anglican minister mentions that he knew of Presbyterians in North Carolina, and he says that in 1705, uh, Huguenots had settled in Bath, which was the first incorporated town in North Carolina, which was settled that same year. This is the same era, just for context, that uh, a, an Englishman named Edward Teach is, is also visiting Bath. Anybody know Edward Teach's other name? Greg? Yes. Blackbeard. Right, right. So, he must have been Baptist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there actually is a record that there were, there were Huguenot pirates, which is, I think Matthew mentioned that, but it's kind of interesting. Um, so towns in colonial North Carolina were small. Often the, the courthouse was the most prominent building, um, and courthouses were often used for visiting preachers. Um, slaves started to be imported in this era in the 1700s, initially um, for rice and tobacco plantations uh, towards the coast. All right, so that's just trying to set the slide, the stage uh, there. Okay, so the big takeaway from this lesson is going to be that there are kind of two major groups that bring Presbyterianism to North Carolina. Um, and, and we're going to talk a little bit about each of those. One is the Ulster Scots, or the Scots-Irish. Um, so these are the, they're Scots, but they, in the 1600s, they moved to Northern Ireland to what was called the Ulster Colony, and they moved from the Ulster Colony to North America. The other group is going to be the Scottish Highlanders, um, so the, the, the Ulster Scots largely came from lowland Scotland, uh, which is the, the south and eastern part of Scotland. The highlands are the, obviously the, the more mountainous region in the north and west of, of, of Scotland. So we're going to talk about both of those groups who bring their own distinctive um, culture and, and practices to North Carolina. Pastor Hughes told me to uh, speak slowly, and I'm only on page one of nine, so I'm, that's why I'm, I'm speaking quickly. It would be worth pointing out that the reason that the Scots were moved, they didn't voluntarily go to Northern Ireland, but they were moved over by an act of the king in order to weaken the desire for independence in Scotland. 
And so obviously that independent spirit which developed in Northern Ireland then drove them west. And that was the reason they came for religious reasons because of their fervent Presbyterian character. And that's why Presbyterianism is so strong in Northern Ireland to this day. And then, of course, they came to this country and brought Presbyterianism, particularly with them when they came. Yes, very good. And I'm not going to repeat that for the sake of time, but uh, Pastor Hughes, talk to him if you'd like to know more about the Ulster Colony and and the the character of the Scottish Presbyterians uh, moving to the colonies. Um, All right, so first we're going to talk about the the Scots-Irish immigration. So in the 1600s, early 1700s, again, they move into Northern Ireland. Um, These are what now people often call the Scots-Irish, although that's a a relatively late term uh, historically. But a a lot of people in the United States, if they say they're Irish uh, in ancestry, they're actually Scots-Irish of this Protestant group that came from from Scotland versus Catholic Catholic, uh, Irish you might think of if, if you met somebody in New York City that says they're Irish, they're probably more Catholic Irish. But a lot of people, in, at least in this area, Scots-Irish means that, you know, groups that came from Scotland. Um, so the Scots-Irish start to migrate to the colonies for several reasons. Um, there are restrictions on selling goods to England. Um, they have some bad growing seasons, which is often a reason for migration. Uh, there's a, a law enacted called the Test Act, which is restricting the ability of... Um, the Scots-Irish in, in Ulster to serve as civil and military leaders unless they are uh, members of the, the Episcopal Church of, of Ireland, which is uh, um, then difficult for Catholics and, and, and Presbyterians. Before the American Revolution, around 200,000 Scots-Irish uh, migrate from the Ireland into the colonies. Many of these, though certainly not all of them, and probably not necessarily even the majority, were Presbyterians of some variety, um, either of the, the Church of in Ireland, the, the Synod in Ireland, which is more connected to the, the Church of Scotland, and then, as we learned about briefly, and, and for, unfortunately don't have more time to go into, also the Covenanters, uh, which now is in the form of the RPCNA, and the Seceders, which now is in the, the ARP in the United States. Many of these settlers landed in Newcastle, Delaware, or Pennsylvania, or, or Pitts, uh, Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. Um, they were often very poor. They set out towards the west and the frontier, which at that time was like Lancaster, Pennsylvania, not even halfway across Pennsylvania. That was, that was the frontier. Um, there was issues over conflict with, over land. Uh, there were conflict with the German immigrants. Um, there were conflicts with Indians. So many of them started to migrate south on what's called the Great Wagon Road. And I had a map of this um, that I, I'm not able to show you because uh, the computer is acting up, but the Great Wagon Road comes from Lancaster down through the Shenandoah Valley, like past Harrisonburg, Virginia, cuts through a pass in the mountains, um, sort of uh, outside Lynchburg, kind of, and then comes down into North Carolina and, and South Carolina. And that was a road that, you know, this isn't a paved highway, but this is Indian trails, uh, roads that were gradually improved by uh, those who were, who were trying to cross them, uh, and they'd use those to migrate south. As early as the 1920s, the Scots-Irish began to enter North Carolina and settle in the, the Piedmont, central North Carolina, as well as the Midlands of, of South Carolina, particularly the area kind of outside of uh, Charlotte, a, a very Presbyterian area. Um, so some communities you can think of, 
In North Carolina, you know, the Hillsborough region was a very early uh, developed region, Orange County, um, down towards Salisbury, and then around the Charlotte area. Many of these families would have brought with them their, their Bibles, their shorter catechisms, and their, their Scottish metrical psalters that they would have sung together uh, from. Before churches were established, small groups would gather to recite the catechism together, sing psalms, and read scripture. However, it's important to realize that not all the colonists were religious. Uh, there's a historian who did an estimate of religious adherence in the different colonies in 1780. So this would have been during the American Revolution, a little later than what we're talking about here. Uh, North Carolina had the lowest rate of a religious adherence at that time. Does anybody want to guess uh, what, the, what the historian estimated? Rate of religious adherence. So like the number of people who are religious. 25? 60? 4% was the, in North Carolina. You can, you can debate whether or not that, that's an accurate uh, number, but the history is pretty clear that religious adherence in early colonial America was very, very low. Um, so you can often think of, people think about kind of the Scots-Irish and Presbyterianism together, uh, and they often go together, but they certainly did not necessarily do so. Um, just as an example, in the, uh, in the 1750s, a young family, Elizabeth and Archibald Barron, and their three children left Ulster and settled in Lancaster or York, uh, uh, York County, Pennsylvania. In 1769, uh, they left Pennsylvania and followed the Great Wagon Road south uh, through the Shenandoah Valley, um, through North Carolina. They crossed over into South Carolina, just south, outside Charlotte. And uh, those are my great, 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 great grandparents, um, the Barons, who my son James Barron is named after that family. Um, my great-grandmother was a baron. Um, all right, so that's kind of the Scots-Irish in, in five minutes. Uh, and I, I'm going fast because I, I want to cover a lot more uh, material. Um, so they, they, in general, you can think about the Scots-Irish as settling kind of I-85 from Durham down to Charlotte. If you, if you think about that road, that's the corridor that gets... Uh, settled and oftentimes it's it's funny like the towns that are prominent then are not really towns that are so so prominent now like early town of in Hillsborough um, Salisbury very prominent town you know now we just think about it as or I think about it as the uh, uh, origin of Cheerwine and Food Lion so um, <laughs> but very prominent town in in the early days all right Highlander immigration so another source of Scottish immigrants were the Highlanders. So the, the Highlanders come from the hills in the north and, uh, and uh, west part of Scotland, hills and islands. I mean, Scotland has a lot of very remote places, but there were a lot of Presbyterians there at this time. As early as 1729, the Highlanders start to arrive, not in Philadelphia as, as the Scots-Irish did, but they arrive at the port of Wilmington, um, uh, which was really the one particularly accessible uh, port that was available. Um, these Highlanders left, again, for, there were a number of reasons, um, changing political structures, crops, laws. I mean, there are just a whole, whole number of reasons. That's a big topic of its own uh, conflict in Scotland. Um, and they arrived in Wilmington, and most of them got on little rafts, 
little boats and went up the Cape Fear River to the area around what's now Fayetteville, North Carolina, which at the time was called Cross Creek. There's a botanical garden right in Fayetteville. I was looking at the map late last night. Uh, Cross Creek comes out of the Cape Fear River at the botanical garden, if anyone's familiar with that. Um, they didn't, in particular, stay in Wilmington for the most part, um, which, again, was, would have been very, very small at this time. Uh, but, but a lot of the kind of non-conforming settlers, meaning not Anglicans, moved out in more to wilderness areas where they were allowed to practice their religion more freely. Um, I'm going to read a, a quote. Uh, I think it's interesting, and this is jumping ahead a little bit in the history, um, but the, the Highlanders, a lot of them spoke Gaelic, not English, and maybe some spoke English as well, but Gaelic would have been the language in the home. Um, and this is a quote from a book called Antebellum, North Carolina, Social History. The fact that most of the Highlanders spoke only Gaelic protected them from the nearby Baptist missionaries at Sandy Creek, which is outside Wilmington, and kept them faithful to Presbyterian Calvinism during the many years when they were without the ministrations of a regular pastor. Their custom of family worship also kept their faith alive. Children learned the catechism from their elders, and the church officers examined them frequently on it. Um, Before each hearth where there was a reverence, for the forms of the Scottish Church, the whole family read the Bible aloud every day and repeated the Shorter Catechism. Um, so, kind of funny, protecting them from the Baptists, but also we see here the faith uh, of saints who are willing to go to a new land and yet uh, persevere in their faith even before they had ministers, which isn't going to happen for another, um, until the 1750s, I guess. Uh, they don't have any ministers, or at least not permanent ministers. The Highlanders uh, appear to have largely... Uh, or in general, been more wealthy than the Scots-Irish, who were, were very poor. The Highlanders seem to be a wealthier bunch who migrated. Um, they uh, started buying slaves earlier, uh, is one, one sign of that. The earliest Presbyterian church in North Carolina may have been Black River Presbyterian Church, founded by the Highlanders uh, from the Argyle region in Scotland around 1740. And Black River Presbyterian Church is still... Uh, PCUSA congregation today. Matthew was able to preach there fairly recently. It's like seven old ladies, right? It's, it's uh, 11 old ladies. It's a very, very little church, but that's kind of between Fayetteville and Wilmington. And the church building that is there now is from the 1800s. It's a really cool building to see, although obviously not from 1740. Um, but, but still there, still, still a practicing church. Um, it's hard to know, you know, what were the earliest churches in North Carolina. The, the records are very... Uh, you know, uh, haphazard, as well as what did it mean for you to become a Presbyterian church when you know, people were meeting early on, but they weren't formalized in the sense that they were on the rolls of a presbytery. Um, but somewhere around 1740, churches seemed to start to, to come into to being. Um, and as I've already mentioned, the Presbyterians began to gather in North Carolina. They didn't have uh, ministers, so they didn't have uh, pastors serving them. <clears throat> um, uh, this is a quote from another historian. Beginning in 1707, and for virtually every year throughout the century, the minutes of the Presbyterian Church contained petitions from congregations and presbyteries pleading for ministers. This isn't just North Carolina, but throughout the colonies. At least every other year, the Senate of Philadelphia and New York, <clears throat> Senates of Philadelphia and New York, wrote to Presbyterian, presbyteries in Scotland or Ireland begging for ministers to come to the New World. By the 1740s, 
Uh, there were 160 congregations in 1761. The Senate lamented, the church suffers a great want for opportunity to instruct students in the knowledge of divinity. Um, and it goes on, but after the revo- or during the revolution, I guess right at the end of the revolution, there were um, uh, about 215 mainline Presbyterian churches in North Carolina, sorry, in the colonies, 215 churches with ministers and 204 without ministers. So nearly half of the churches didn't, still didn't have ministers. And probably many of those with ministers shared the ministers between multiple congregations. So, you know, one thing that can happen today is people lamenting, um, almost seems like there are too many seminaries, too many seminarians these days, uh, and, and maybe that can be true in ways, but we're very blessed to be able to have availability of ministers uh, that, that churches didn't have for a long time. Um, part of the challenge in Presbyterianism is that Presbyterians always emphasize educated ministri- ministry. Uh, one of the early ministers in North Carolina was examined in 1765, he was to become a minister. This was examined by his presbytery. He was quizzed on ontology, pneumatics, ethics, rhetoric, natural philosophy, geography, and astronomy. Um, so that's a high bar uh, for, for finding a new minister. And there, weren't pres- uh, there weren't seminaries for the most part in this era. The first seminary that is Presbyterian Seminary in North America is not, doesn't even come until 1793. That's, uh, and that's a different group, the Associate Presbytery. And that's in Pennsylvania also. So ministers would have trained in you know, schools and then um, been mentored by, by other ministers to get their training. Um, so at the time of the American Revolution, the mainline Presbyterian church was the second largest re- religious demographic in the colonies, uh, the first being Anglican church. By the early 19th century, that is uh, quickly taken over by what group? Any, any guesses? early 1800s, by Baptists. So Baptists kind of roar into existence in the colonies, and, and then Baptists are soon taken over, anybody know, by the late 1800s, by Methodists. Right? And part of that is Methodists have circuit riders, right? So they, they are able to send these ministers around on horses to serve a whole lot of different churches. Baptists are, have the advantage of not necessarily caring as much about educated ministry. Anybody, you know, in a sense, can be ordained. Um, which is the sense of a call. Uh, and you know, so obviously there are, you know, those are the secondary causes as to why those things happen. Uh, but there are, there are sort of structural challenges by the, the commitments of Presbyterians to educated ministry that, that hindered growth simply for the lack of pastors. Um, all right. Um, so... That's kind of the, the overview of the groups that come to North Carolina and start to, to form uh, what become Presbyterian congregations. One of the most significant events that happens in the, 17th, or in the 18th century, uh, historically, and it's significant partially just because there's a good record of it, is a young minister named Hugh McAdden. Actually, he's not even a minister yet. He's just finished seminary. He's been licensed to preach. Um, or doesn't finish seminary, but he finishes school. He's been licensed to preach. And he comes to North Carolina on this missionary journey in 1775. Uh, so Hugh McAdam was born in Pennsylvania in 1735. He attends what becomes the Princeton University, uh, which predates Princeton Seminary, which are separate institutions. But it, Princeton University was an early school to help train ministers. Um, 
He finishes when he's 18 in 1753. In 1755, he's licensed to preach by the, the New Side Presbytery, which is, Matthew didn't totally get into last time, but it's more the revivalist side during the First Great Awakening. Uh, in 1755, he sets off, sent by his presbytery, he sets off on horseback for a missionary journey to visit the Scots-Irish, or just the Scottish immigrants of all stripes in North and South Carolina. Fortunately, he left a thorough journal of his journey. Unfortunately, the journal is lost. Um, but fortunately, uh, a historian in the 1800s named William Foote, who was a North Carolina Presbyterian, had access to the journal uh, for his 1846 work, Sketches of North Carolina, and he captured a lot of quotes and content from the journal. So I'm going to try to go through this. and I have a bunch of quotes from it that are really interesting, and I'm, I'm not going to be able to read them all for the sake of time. Um, um, but he leaves, 1755, he leaves Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, heads down through the Shenandoah Valley, crosses through a pass in the mountains, and then heads south towards kind of like uh, Danville, Virginia type area, like north of, north of Greensboro, north of Hillsboro, of that area. He crosses over into the uh, Caswell County, Orange County type area, heads down this, uh, the Great Wagon Road down I-85, past Charlotte, kind of uh, crosses into South Carolina for a little bit, then loops up through Fayetteville to Wilmington, cuts through the middle of eastern North Carolina, back towards um, kind of Orange County area north of, north of uh, Durham, and then heads back, back north, all within about a year's time. And as he does that, he goes, he's just in, he meets people, these different uh, groups of, of Presbyterians, and he meets them, and then they for the most part, introduce him to someone else. Someone rides with him on horseback another 20 miles or something, and they meet up with another group. And he stops and he preaches. He meets with people. Um, he's recruited multiple times. Churches try to, try to extend calls to him to come as their pastor. None of, uh, none of these churches, again, have pastors at the time. Um, McAdden was a new sider, new sider, or more on the revivalist side, but he was willing to preach or meet with any groups who would have him. He did express anxiety uh, about receiving opposition from the old side groups. This is 15 years into the division between the old and new side. Uh, he would preach in homes, open air, Baptist churches, and courthouses, kind of wherever he, he was able to preach. Um, he observed division among groups due to the influence of Baptist ministers who were starting to appear in the area. And his highest compliment he seems to give as he, as he travels is uh, he meets a group and he calls them pretty regular Presbyterians. That, that seems to be what, when he thinks uh, fondly of, of someone. Um, just a little bit historical context, and we can't go into this for the sake of time, but this is also during the, the French and Indian War. Uh, Braddock's defeat happens at this time uh, when the, the British troops failed to, to, to take Fort Duquesne and, and what's now Pittsburgh. Um, and he, he actually talks about leaving North Carolina because of Braddock's defeat, which I don't totally understand that historically. Uh, but that's uh, a significant event in the rise of a young general named George Washington. So uh, just to give you some historical sense there. Um, all right, I'm going to read this one long quote because I think this is a, an encouraging uh, testimony of his, his service to God at, at this time uh, that we, we now, 250 years, are, are heirs of. He says, on his first Sunday in North Carolina, having now gotten, got within the limits prescribed me by the presbytery, I was resolved not to be so anxious about getting along in my journey, but take some of my time to labor among the people. If so be the Lord might bless it to the advantage of any, 
May the Lord of his infinite mercy grant his blessing upon my poor attempts and make me in some way instrumental in turning some of these precious souls from darkness into light and from the power of God and the power of Satan unto God, that the power may be known to be of God and all glory redound to his own name. Um, so that was his, his faithfulness and his heart's desire was to glorify God and see the lost brought to faith. Um, I'm going to skip some of my quotes, but you know, he has just some wild adventures escaping from Catawba Indians. Um, he, uh, when he gets in more to the Fable area, he preaches to some Highlanders. He said, I preached to a number of Highlanders. Some of them scarcely knew one word that I said. They were Gaelic speakers. And he says, the poorest singers I ever heard in all my life. Um, he, he preaches at one church one with one group. He says, I preached in the AM to a large and splendid audience, but was surprised when I came again in the PM to see about a dozen people met to hear me. Uh, you know, a lament that, that many pastors would have today. Um, so he leaves North Carolina. Uh, as he does, he goes back to Virginia to meet with a minister named James Campbell, uh, who is a Scotsman who spoke uh, Gaelic. Um, and he says... You really need to go minister to these Highlanders. They speak Gaelic. They need a pastor. Um, and, and he successfully convinces uh, Campbell to go. And Campbell will then minister among the Highlanders in the Fayetteville area from 1756 to 1773. Um, McAdden himself will later return to North Carolina to minister in several places, but largely up on, along the Virginia border, Caswell County area. Uh, and he dies in 17. 17- 81 and is buried at Red House Church in, in Caswell County. Um, and um, a few, few days after his, or a couple weeks after his death, the British come through and destroy a lot of his papers, which his children later lamented, lamented they lost a lot of the history about him. Uh, but a significant figure in North Carolina Presbyterianism who really helped to um, consolidate and bring about congregations as time went on. All right. Um, I think I have time to read one more quote. I, I think also encouraging. Uh, this is from his son, McAdam's son. He, he writes this 60 years after his death. My father was a very systematic man. He always spent one or two days every week in private study. And if he walked into fields, he always carried his Bible with him. He visited his... He visited with his elders once a year, all the families within the bounds of his congregations. He would exhort and pray with them during his stay. He would collect all of his congregations once a year at his church and hold an examination of those present. He administered the sacrament of, at each of his churches twice every year. He spent his life in attempting, attempting to convince all of their sins and in rendering happy those who were members of his congregations respected and beloved by all who knew him. During the revolution, the Lord God Almighty thought proper to remove this venerable man whose influence will always be acknowledged with pleasure. He departed his life January 20th, 1781, leaving a wife and seven children. Um, which is, again, just a, a testimony of faithfulness that um, you know, whether we be ministers or not, we can all, all aspire to that faithfulness uh, to God in our lives. Um, okay, so James Campbell, I just mentioned, becomes a minister to the, the, the Highlanders in the Fayetteville area. Um, 
probably the first permanent Presbyterian minister um, in the colonies. In 1765, three more ministers accept, so, uh, accept calls in North Carolina. James Criswell in Granville County, which is the Oxford area, north of, north of, uh, nor- northeast of Durham. Henry Patillo in Orange County, which is the, the Hillsboro area. And David Caldwell in, in Alamance County, the Greensboro area. Um, those are probably then the first, those, those four together, the first four ministers, Presbyterian ministers in North Carolina. Uh, David Caldwell is a neat one to, to dwell on a little bit. He ministered to uh, two congregations uh, together for, for 52 years. One, one is called Buffalo Presbyterian that still exists. I can't remember the name of the other, the other church. Um, he opened a school that uh, was often called Caldwell's Log College, a uh, similar name to the Log College that um, is training training young men for the ministry in, in New Jersey as well. Um, his school trained as many as five governors of North Carolina and 50 ministers that would serve in North Carolina. Uh, two interesting graduates, well, one is certainly a graduate, one, one is, uh, may, may not have been, but affiliated. Two interesting graduates, um, uh, one is Barton Stone, Anybody know who Barton Stone is? He, he, he became a Presbyterian minister and then moved to Kentucky. Uh, Barton Stone, is all, his name often comes with uh, Campbell, the Stone Campbell movement or the Restorationist movement, which uh, today is in existence in the, in the Church of Christ and the Disciples of Christ. Uh, uh, Stone and Barton were both Presbyterian ministers who had this idea of uh, restoring early Christianity and kind of rethinking everything. And, and what they get out of that is the, uh, the, the, the Church of Christ movement, which is um, Arminian, a uh, very loose form of church government. Um, they, they believe you have to be baptized to be saved. So is that what's, what's typically known as the Campbellites? The Campbellites, yeah. So no creed? Uh, yeah, no creed. Yeah, no creed but the Bible. Um, but they, they start out as Presbyterians. Hmm. Uh, and, and Stone is involved... Um, particularly in what's known as the Cane Ridge Revivals in Kentucky, which you, you may have heard of, which are, are part of the, the early days of the, the Second Great Awakening, uh, these outdoor camp meetings that, um, that become famous for their revivals. Those really start as these Presbyterian communion seasons. We just read about how McAdden ministers communion twice a year, which was, was common, uh, where they would have these week-long kind of communion seasons, preparing themselves to receive communion, those morph into these revivals that are happening in Kentucky. <clears throat> Another man uh, associated with David Caldwell, he at least grew up in Caldwell's church, may not have attended the Log College, was a man named James McGreedy, who goes on to be a minister as well. Uh, he goes up to Pennsylvania for a little bit, then comes back to North Carolina and pastors a church in the Burlington area. Also comes to be associated with Kentucky, uh, in, in Burlington, um, he was known to be a fiery preacher with an emphasis on Christian piety. Uh, not everyone liked his preaching and his emphasis so much that at one point someone took the pulpit out of the church and set it on fire uh, and left a message in blood threatening his life unless he changed his preaching, um, which is scary. Um, 
James McGreedy also moves to Kentucky, which is, this is the frontier. After the revolution, Kentucky is really kind of frontier land. Um, and his communion seasons turn into the revival of 1800 in Kentucky, which I think predates the, the, uh, the Cane Ridge revivals by a few years. Uh, but that's where people started to have these physical reactions that were called the jerks. They were like, physically flailing around and things, the re- result of these uh, revival meetings. Um, James McGreedy um, becomes involved in another offshoot that happens from Kentucky called the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, uh, which you, you may or may not be familiar with. It's still around in some form today, uh, but the Cumberland Presbyterian Church was started for a variety of reasons, but one being of a lot of pushback in, in Kentucky out on the frontier for this requirement for educated ministers. Um, and it was hard to get that education. Um, and so they go and form a separate denomination called, called the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. Also related to it was the revivalism happening uh, at the time. They end up being formally an, an Arminian Presbyterian Church as well. Um, an interesting thing we, we may be able to come back to later is the Cumberland Presbyterian Church in either 1905 or 1910, I can't remember, joins back into the Peace USA. This is in the years kind of leading up to the formation of the OPC. You have this Arminian Presbyterian Church joining the massive Peace USA at that time. Um, so those are just two, two guys affiliated with David Caldwell, uh, just kind of a curiosity, largely. Um, by 1770, right leading up to the um, revolution, the... Uh, Orange Presbytery was formed with six ministers to have a presbytery for this region. All right, I'm, uh, as, as Matthew and I are prone to do, running short on time here, but I'm going to just tell you very briefly, there's a lot of involvement in Presbyterians in, in things leading up to the American Revolution and in things uh, you know, happening through the Revolution. Uh, there's something called the, the Regulator Movement uh, or the War of Regulation in the years before the Revolution where a lot of... Um, Folks in rural North Carolina get upset by the, the, the laws, the taxes, corrupt leadership, um, and they start to push back. Interestingly, McAdden and, and the other ministers at the time um, are really concerned about it. They, they tell the governor, of, or the, um, yeah, the governor of North Carolina that the, the Presbyterians are, who are involved are just lacking faith, piety, and virtue. And they write a long pastoral letter to the people saying, hey, don't be, don't be so rebellious, essentially. Um, turns out all those guys when the revolution starts all those four ministers end up being very loyal uh, or very very ardent patriots so they, they kind of changed their tune uh, but there was conflict there at the time between the ministers and the people as well some of the highlanders were, were ended up being very strong loyalists during the uh, revolution and I think some of them like flee to Nova Scotia or something like that uh, to, to get away from the conflict um all right, we're out of time, so uh, I'm going to just rush ahead. So at the time of the Revolution, there are something around 50 churches. Um, the, uh, notice we haven't ever mentioned Raleigh here, and that's because Raleigh didn't exist before the Revolution. Raleigh comes into being in the late 1700s when a, a state legislature convinces the state to buy 1,000 of his acres to form the city of Raleigh. Joel Lane, you can still see the Joel Lane house here, here in Raleigh. I think it's... Uh, it's an interesting move that he convinces the state to buy all this land. But um, 
1801, there's a school formed in Raleigh uh, called the Raleigh Academy. Still at the time, there are no Presbyterian churches in Raleigh. Um, but in 1810, they hire a 32-year-old Presbyterian minister named William McFeeters as, as headmaster of the school, which is on the same lot that now the governor's mansion uh, sits on. Um, and uh, he probably starts holding services, services in the old uh, state house, which later burned down. Uh, but the state house was opened by the government for uh, groups that didn't have church buildings yet to come hold services inside the state house. Also interesting uh, thing. Um, but he then finally in 1816 uh, becomes pastor of a newly established church called First Presbyterian Church of Raleigh, which is still in existence today, catty corner from the, the current state house building. Uh, one of the initial four ruling elders is also a man named William Peace, who you uh, would know as the namesake of William Peace University in, in Raleigh, which is a, historically a Presbyterian college. All right. Um, time, time neglects uh, you know, a number of issues here, but that gives you an overview of how we get from no Presbyterian churches to around 100 in, in 1816. Uh, Presbyterian churches in Raleigh. First Presbyterian churches in Raleigh is about the 100th church in the state. Sorry, I said Raleigh, but the state of North Carolina. Um, but hopefully you're encouraged, uh, I'm encouraged by the faith of the of these saints that went before us and were willing to persevere in, in a foreign land, even without ministers, uh, to hold uh, to the fast of the faith through scripture, singing, and, and their catechism. Uh, and we can follow uh, in their steps. Um, I intended to have with my lessons of some recommended reading for people who want to dig in more. This is actually a difficult topic because a, a lot of the resources on this are out of print. Uh, it's not a big seller, it turns out, unless you're me or Matthew. Um, but if you're interested in learning more, you could talk to either of us and uh, we could both talk your ear off about it or we could also point you to other sources that you might find interesting.